Matthew, the upside of down, we'll be in chapter five as we begin this second season, as we work our way through a three-year series called Matthew. Just kidding, I don't know how long it's gonna be. That's Jay's call. <laughs> how about those baptisms, huh? Was that fun? Okay. First, it's, it's so fun to hear a, a small child just be so, yes, all right? And then I also loved Ben's speed Baptize you in the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit real quick. Because man, once Jimmy G started down, he went down and it was. The highest uh, learning institutions in our country, um, it's interesting when you take a look at what their most popular courses are. I got this information from John Ortberg in a devotional that I listen to most days. And he said that Harvard's most popular course in the history of its school, which is the oldest um, institution, educational institution in North America, is positive psychology class number 1504. That Harvard's longest and most popular, not longest, but most um, uh, popular class signed up for every year is this, is this class called positive psychology. Yale, um, founded in 1701, their most popular class in the history of their school is psychology in the good life taught by a gal named Laurie Santos. And it is every year the most popular course every single year. If you go to Stanford, right down the road, founded in 1885, their most popular course every single year is Designing Your Life, co-taught by a Christian, Dave Evans, and a guy named Bill Burnett. Because being good at school isn't enough. You've got to learn to be good at life. Making a living won't do it unless you also make a life to go along with that. And somewhere deep inside, even though these institutions are not Christian institutions, you still find this search for meaning behind all of the activity that is going on in the highest um, schools in our land. But the most famous teaching on how to make a good life, by far, unarguably the most famous is the teachings of Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is the most popular, the most sought after course, the most read. Tens of thousands of books have been written about this small sermon. I can't know how many different times there's been preaching and teaching and passed on. In fact, it's so popular that without the Gospel of Matthew, you would still have the complete Sermon on the Mount because it's quoted so many times in the first and second century. You'd have, a, you have several copies of different ones where it's been copied. It's the most famous lecture in the history of mankind. And the happy life that Jesus is going to teach us about is not an accumulation of things, but more a knowledge about God and an intimate reaction and relationship with him. It's not going to be a moral code with a list of behaviors on how we should act so much as it's going to be a description of how life in the kingdom works. So it's, it's going to be, we're going to take some time today and we're going to just kind of get big picture of where it fits in the gospel of Matthew. And then we're going to talk a lot about blessing and who is blessed. So let me pray for us. Father, thank you for the opportunity just to be a witness to what you're doing in some 
folks' lives and to see the baptisms. We're grateful for not only gathering here, but gathering online, gathering in the theater. And we commit our time to you, Father. We'd love for the Holy Spirit to intervene and become the teacher that we might not only grow in our knowledge about you, but grow in our love for you. May it be so, Jesus, in your name, amen. One of the earliest biographical uh, offerings that we have about the death and resurrection of Jesus is the Gospel of Matthew. It's written by Matthew, who's the tax collector. Um, A strange choice for Jesus to ask to join him. And Matthew sets about, even though you might think he just said, well, I wonder what I can remember. If, If I were writing a biography about my wife, I would just say, well, let's see, I met her and I just start on. But there's some very intentional structure to what Matthew does that because we're not as familiar, we're not raised in the educational system of the Jewish culture, we, won't, we sometimes don't recognize it quite as quickly as they would have. But there's actually quite, some, uh, quite a bit of, of intentionality towards how Matthew wrote this gospel. He's going to try to show that Jesus is not only the Messiah, but he's the Messiah in the lineage of Abraham and David and Moses. And so he'll begin with this introduction in chapters one through three, and there you'll see a genealogy, and it's one of the two, two of the four gospels that have the, the birth story of Jesus. Um, and we've got that introduction there, and then we see him get baptized, we see him get tempted, we see him begin to preach and to begin to proclaim the message that repent for the kingdom of heaven is near, and he says that over and over and over. He calls some of the disciples heals a few people, and then bam, we're to this sermon, chapter 5. He's going to try to show, Matthew is, as he kind of puts things in parallel through this introduction and through the rest of the book, that Moses and Jesus are are complementary of one another, and there's a lot of parallels. That as Moses came out of Egypt, so did Jesus. As Moses crossed the Red Sea, Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River. Wilderness for 40 years, wilderness for 40 days. And here's the big one. It shows up in chapter 5. Moses went up on the mountain, received the law, and brought the law down. Jesus, in chapter 5, is going to go up on a mountainside and give a new law. So that Moses, actually Jesus, becomes greater than Moses. He is the deliverer of our sin. He gives a brand new teaching and he's going to initiate this new covenant. So this all happens in this introduction, and we've already gone through this part, and we've taken our time through it. Now, here's one of the big organizational things that I want you to see, is that then what Matthew is going to do is he's going to organize his teachings with some very good literary markers that show us he stops and starts exactly saying the same thing over and over again, and he's going to do it with five different sections. Five different sections over the coming months, we'll work our way through. And the parallel is, is that the Jewish, the Jewish teachings of Moses was in five books, the five books of the Torah. And what he's saying here, Matthew, is, is that there's, here's the new law, the new covenant, the new explanation of what kingdom, in the heaven, in the kingdom of heaven looks like, and he lays it out for us. And you can see in chapters 4 through 7, that's where we're going to spend the next... The, most of our time for several weeks where we'll be in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus will announce the kingdom and then he'll teach about who is blessed. What does it look like 
to be blessed. How do you live a blessed life? And he basically, that's how we got our title of the upside down, is that he basically flips everything around. Then in the next section, he's going to tell a series of nine stories about different characters different that are having difficult times, illnesses and death and uh, Roman culture and all of these different kinds of things that he's going to teach how Jesus steps into every one of those different areas and invites them, every one of them, to follow him. He'll send his disciples out and then he has a giant another block of teaching on chapter 10, chapters 11 through 13, the middle section, there's another group of stories about people and how they react to Jesus, both positive and negative, both of the disciples and the religious leaders. And then he begins to teach in this section with a series of parables, and you'll find parable after parable about soil and farmers and growing things and, and treasure then in the fourth section, are you following me here? The fourth section, this is, this is like, what's this got to do with blessing? Not much, but I want you to get this. I want you to understand, we were gonna be in Matthew a long time and I will promise you it is not Jay's intention that we spend a long time in Matthew because it just makes the preaching schedule easy. He wants this book to saturate our lives. We want you to plop down two, three, four, five years from now, plop down anywhere in Matthew and be in familiar territory. Fourth section in chapters 14 through 20, that shows the different expectations of the Messiah and how Jesus begins to do healing and they begin to go crazy thinking he's the one and they're looking for this victorious um, king that is going to come and Jesus begins to let them know you know, who do you guys say that I am? Yeah, that's true, but I'm going to be different than you ever thought. And then in 21 through 25, it's the clash of the kingdoms, and Jesus begins to lay down the gauntlet, and it's clear who's on his side and who's not. He'll ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. He'll overturn the temple and tick everybody off. And basically, he offends every religious leader in his country. He's, criti he's critical of the Pharisees, he's critical of the, the political leadership, and he weeps over the way that the children of God have been led. And then there's the conclusion of Matthew where in chapters 26 through 28, where he'll have a Passover meal with his disciples, and he'll talk about this promised new beginning, how Jesus will be arrested and sub subjected to an illegal trial, He'll go before the, the Jewish leaders and then he goes before Herod who thinks he's innocent but caves into the pressure of the, the, the popular people there and so he pronounces him to be crucified. And then Matthew begins to show that this is not a failure. This is what Matthew, the book of Matthew has been saying all along. It's upside down. It's not the way you think it's going to come out. And then the book ends with a surprising twist, which I hope you know. The tomb's empty. Jesus rose from the dead. And it concludes by him coming and teaching them and giving some final teachings and giving them what we call the Great Commission about how we should go and make disciples. And so the Matthew very intentionally and very purposefully lays out this comparison. This is a new Messiah. He is the fulfillment of all that has come. 
and yet he is something new. And over and over again, he will draw on Old Testament references more than any other gospel. I'm trying to tie it back to how Jesus is greater than Abraham. He is greater than David. Yes, he is even greater than Moses. Okay, now, chapter 5. Now, when he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and he sat down. Now, right away, what we see is Jesus as a rabbi. He shows up and he starts to talk about it. So this picture of Jesus sitting down, that's the position of a teacher in Jesus's day. We have the teacher stand and you guys sit. It would have been opposite in Jesus's day. And he begins to talk to the crowds. And this word for crowds immediately now becomes a major theme over 40 times in the book of Matthew. uh, Matthew will refer to Jesus and the crowds. And they gather together. And here begin in this teaching, Jesus will reject how the Pharisees have interpreted the law and reject how the Pharisees are practicing the law. And he begins this teaching that is an amazing teaching. Here's a picture. It's a beautiful place. It's on the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee. It it's, makes a natural amphitheater. The next picture shows a little bit of the incline working up out of the lake. And right there on your left-hand side is a picture of the Beatitudes Church or the, what we think is the site of where he would have given these things. This sermon that we're about to spend some time with is an amazing piece of literature just in and of itself. Take, take out of the fact that it was preached by Jesus, and then you realize that critics all over the world of many different faiths and religions would say that this is one of the highest um, examples of religious teaching This is from Dallas Willard. He says, the Sermon on the Mount along with Psalm 23 and the Lord's Prayer are considered by almost everyone to be among the highest expressions of religious insight and moral inspiration. They are among the literary literary and religious treasures of the human race. And here's the problem with Sermon on the Mount. Here's the challenge you've got before you over the next, not only today, but over the next several weeks. Some of you are too familiar with it. Some of you will just put your mind into second gear and begin to think of something else because you remember, blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek, blessed are... You've read this before and you think there's nothing for you. I did a little um, hit, Google search on on Sermon on the Mount and, and it's just millions and millions and millions and millions of hits. And so please don't catch yourself in that in that arrogant situation to say that there's nothing here for me. What I want to do with our time is I want to just stop right there at verse 1 before we get into this thing and just talk about blessing. It's mentioned here nine times, blessed are, blessed are. And and this is a word that we we, um, hear and, and use all of the time. But it's one that I think we get confused on. So I want to, I'm going to just challenge you to take a minute, watch a short video here about blessing, because it'll give us Matthew's big picture of blessing from Genesis on, and then we'll continue back in. The story of the Bible begins with God bringing life out of darkness, ordering our beautiful world, and then blessing all of its creatures. 
Hold on, blessing. That's one of those funny religious words. Yeah, right. People say a blessing over their meal or after they sneeze. Or just a general way to say that things are going well for me. But in the Bible, a blessing is more specific. The first blessing in the Bible is when God creates animals and he blessed them, saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the land. Ah, so God's blessing is about flourishing and multiplication of life. Right, it's when God shares his life-producing ability with others. Next, God gives humans an additional blessing that sets them apart from the animals. Not only are we one of God's creatures that can generate new life, we've also been appointed as God's representative image to rule and oversee this whole flourishing world on God's behalf. So part of our blessing is to take care of God's blessing for all creation. And God wants us to rule while trusting in his abundance, to eat from the tree of blessing, that is, the tree of God's own eternal life. Now there is another tree to eat from. Yes, and it represents this decision to try and seize abundance and life on our own terms by our own wisdom. The humans encounter a deceptive creature who tricks them into eating from this other tree, thinking it's a shortcut to blessing. And instead of blessing, this tree brings a curse. A curse? You mean like a magic spell? No, in the Bible, the curse is when God hands people over to the consequences of seizing our own blessing on our own terms. It's a curse because instead of abundance and life, we end up with scarcity, isolation, and death. So God curses the ground, and instead of fruitfulness, there will be famine. Instead of overseeing the world, they will have to work the land until they die. Man. But God also curses that deceptive creature that fooled the humans, saying that a human will come one day to destroy it. And that human will be born into a world of scarcity where men and women and families and tribes are all locked in violent conflict. If God's blessing is now covered with a curse, how can we flourish? Even more, how can we rule with God? Well, here the biblical story takes an interesting turn. God chooses one couple, Abraham and Sarah, and God blesses them and says they will become a huge family. Be fruitful and multiply. And there's more. God says that his blessing on Abraham and his family is for this larger purpose, so that through them, God's blessing can go out to all of the nations. So God's plan is to reverse the curse and restore the blessing by first blessing this one family. Right. And this family does experience God's blessing. Even when they journey through times of danger and scarcity, they grow into this huge nation, Israel. And God brings them to a mountain and invites them to be his representatives. Yes, God will bless Israel so that they can become a blessing to the nations. All they have to do is trust and live by God's wisdom. And they're told that this is a choice between life and death, between blessing and curse. Now keep reading, because the Israelites almost never trust God for his blessing. Their story is filled with tales of deception, violent grabs for power, resulting in the ultimate curse, exile from their land and slavery to foreign nations. But Israel's prophets who lived through all of this, they still trusted in God's promise to Abraham. And they anticipated a future Israelite who would come to restore God's blessing and reverse the curse for Israel and for all the nations. When we turn to the story of Jesus, we find Israel still experiencing the curse, living as slaves to the Roman Empire. But Jesus, he so trusted in God's blessing, he claimed that it was arriving in a new way through himself. He wanted his followers to trust in God's abundance, to share and be generous. And he even taught his followers to bless people who curse them. 
Jesus would even reverse the curse by healing and restoring people's bodies. God's blessing is being unleashed. Jesus also confronted his fellow Israelites who were in power, and he accused them of getting in the way of God's plan to bless Israel and the nations through them. Those leaders arrest Jesus so they could have him killed. And instead of fighting back, Jesus believed that he was that chosen Israelite who would face the curse that Israel and all humanity deserves, and he would allow the curse to fall on him. Jesus dies the shameful death of a man under the curse. But just as God brought life and blessing out of darkness in the beginning, so here, through Jesus, God reverses death by raising Jesus. The curse is put to death so that the blessing of God's life can spread out once again. After his resurrection, Jesus blessed his followers, and he said that his presence would be with them as they learn to trust in God's blessing and share with others. And while death and the curse still have a hold on our world, followers of Jesus trust that the power of God's blessing is even stronger. It means we can live with extreme generosity, even when it seems like there's not enough. And that leads us to the conclusion of the biblical story, where every nation is enjoying the gifts of God's abundance, because in God's new world that is sustained by the life-giving power of Jesus, there is no longer any curse. This video is from the, a, a website called thebibleproject.com. If you're not ever familiar with that, you should um, avail that resource to you whenever you've got questions about books in the Bible or topics in the scriptures. Even though it's a bit long, it gives us a full picture from beginning to end of the blessing of God and how God intends to communicate it to us. But we mess this word up a bunch and we use it a lot, but we also mess it up. So let me talk to you about what does it mean to be blessed? Um, first, let me talk about what it doesn't mean to be blessed. Um, if you do a go another Google search on hashtag blessed, you will get 1,460,000,000 hits. I, now, I'm old, so I, did, I didn't really know anything about this, but Dave Tish told me you do hashtag like this, blessed. And so I guess that's a thing because... Um, it, it's, and it's getting on social media and just showing how happy you are. But let me tell you, ha blessedness really has nothing to do with how many friends that smile in the photos all around you, how big of a boat that you drive, where you get to play golf, or what city you get to visit on your vacation. And this is just a, a beginning of what you will, if you were to look up what does it mean to be blessed, you would be pointed to these kinds of results. But instead to bless is actually to project good on another. What it means to bless is to project good on another, the highest type of well-being possible. And we see this word just in the New Testament alone, makarios is where the word for blessed. We see it over 50 times in the New Testament describing who is blessed, who's the blessed one, who has the favor of God. Jesus' moral vision of the kingdom of heaven is described as a people who are in it and are blessed because they are in it. To be blessed is simply to be one who God projects good over. And the promises of his word says that all of his children are that, that he projects good over you in each and every 
uh, situation. Now, we can talk about the blessed ones and what that, those characteristics are next week. We'll come back and do that. But it's imperative that we understand that what's going on here is this description of, of how Jesus thinks the kingdom will work. And it's totally different than what we believe or think it will be. Now, how do we count ourselves as among the blessed? Let me give you a verse in Romans 4. It says this, blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Covered there literally means to hide away. Blessed is the one, verse 8, whose sin the Lord will never count against them. And so if you have said yes to Jesus as in his offer to eternal life, then that would make you part of the blessed. Romans 3 says, now apart from the law, there's a righteousness of God that has been made known. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who will believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus as promised in Romans 8, verse 1. And then in Isaiah, God says that I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions, transgressions for your own sake and remember your sins no more. A relationship with Jesus Christ ushers you into the category of the blessed, of those who are covered over, that have been forgiven. And he's going to now use this term, blessed, 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 blessed throughout the rest of this little beatitude section. And it has nothing to do with material possessions or how your life is working. This is important for you to know because we goof this up all the time. We think that the blessing of God is corresponding with how well my life goes. And if it's going crummy, I must not be blessed, I must be cursed. But what the scriptures have declared clearly over and over that in a relationship with Christ, you cannot escape the category of blessed. Your first breath in the morning when you wake up and the last breath before you fall asleep and everything in between. God will not sleep or slumber. He will follow you all of those days. This is so important. God wanted his children to know this so much that when you go back to the Old Testament and then God is through Moses teaching Aaron and the, and the priests how to care for the people. He says, each time you gather together, what I'd like for you to do is pronounce this over the people. I'd like for you to pronounce over it. The Lord bless you and keep you. Lord, make his face to shine upon you. Be gracious to you. The Lord, turn his face, his countenance towards you. Pay attention to you and give you peace. Amen. And this is, this, this is so important that the Father, the Heavenly Father, wants this in your head. That he said every time, Aaron, make sure you and your descendants, every time they gather, pronounce this blessing, pour it over them time and time again so that they will recognize that they live in this state of blessedness. Now, I've got something that I'm going to ask uh, the band to do with me in just a moment. So let me call up the band right now. But here's what I want to, one more thing I want to say about this, and that is the word Amen. 
or amen. Amen, typically, when I, if I were to ask you, what do you think amen means? If you're honest, you'd say, the end. I'm done. Let's eat. But in fact, amen has nothing to do with that. It's something at the end that says, I agree with what's been said. I am, in, I am in harmony with, if you say these things and then I say amen, I agree in my spirit over my life what you prayed. That's why you need to be really careful from this point on what you say amen to. Because you're saying, I love Eugene Peterson's translation of the Hebrew word for amen. He says, and that, he said he translates it, and that's just the way we want it. So here's what we're going to do. Over the next several minutes, I've asked the band and I thank them. I put a special load on them because this is, this is a new song for them. And I've asked that they would sing this blessing over you and that you would receive it. And you would receive it by simply saying amen. That's just the way I want it. And it comes from the scripture so you don't have to worry about them praying something weird over you. But then after after you've had this blessing sung over you, then I'm gonna ask you to become, after being blessed, I'm gonna ask you to become the blesser and sing it over some other folks. So Mark and the team, you just sit, we'll take the lights down a little bit. You sit and receive and know this is true of you every breath you take.